Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started today. Uh, got a lot of ground to cover. Before I take off, I want to uh, remind you the podcasts for the past month are up and available via the church app or if you go to the church website. Uh, Sister Vernell Murphy and her presentation on my story. Uh, Dave Bunch talked to us about grace. Brian Teer also talked to us about grace through the vehicle of his story about shooting his Uncle Babe's trough, which was excellent. Uh, and then Nathan Henson uh, talked to us about plans and seasons. All of those are up and available on the church app or the website. They were all great. They were all timely. If you missed one of those, go back and check it out because they were, they were great. Uh, I am personally very thankful for all of those people and their anointed and very thoughtful, studied, and educated approaches to their topics and the task of addressing this class. Uh, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to talk to you guys. Uh, y'all are an, y'all are a pretty eclectic group, pretty pretty wide and diverse. Sometimes y'all are hard, hard to talk to, uh, but they all did it uh, with excellence and with uh, anointing and with preparation. And I'm just I'm really grateful for that. So um, props to everybody, and uh, and thank you. So go back and listen to what they presented. We're going to kick off a new series today. Uh, that series is called. Boxes. This is not my material. I wish I could take credit for it, uh, but it's, it's not mine. It comes from a pastoring friend of mine named Royce Wilson, who pastors a church in Bothell, Washington, and it's part of the Seattle metropolitan area, um, not too far from the Canadian border up there. And I don't know if this material is original with him or not. Um, it could be, but Royce is the worst texting friend that I have. Um, I don't know if y'all have a friend like that, but, you know, you text them and then, you know, around here we joke about Chris Watley. You send Chris Watley a text and then it's like three days later, Chris, do you need me to bring such and such to the church for practice tonight? And then you'll hear back from him four days later. No, it's good. Don't worry about it. I'm like, well, thanks. Royce is about 20 times worse than that. I'll send Royce a text and I'll hear back from him like six weeks later. Hey, man, do you have notes on such and such? And then I'll finish teaching whatever it is, and he'll be like, oh, yeah, here they are. Here you go. And I'm like, thanks, man. Appreciate that. But... So anyway, we'll find out in a month or so if uh, this material is original with him or not. But it may not be mine, but it is very, it's timely. Uh, it's very targeted. Uh, it, this material goes hand-in-hand with the 4Gs material that we finished up back in early September. And in many ways, it has some of the same focus as the 4G material. Well, how, how is that? I'm glad you asked. Um, the nature of this series, Boxes, really is about perspective. It's all about seeing the hidden root causing the rotten fruit. Um, that's a sticky statement. So really, it, it's this, and it should sound familiar, seeing the problem beneath the problem. So, how many of you in here today want to solve problems? Yeah, all of us do. Uh, how many of you in here today can testify that living for God is not the absence of problems? I see a few. Yes. So let's go ahead and, and get that cleared up right away. What living for God is, it, it's not the absence of problems. It's not about never having a problem. What it is about is the presence of a problem solver. It's having access to the supernatural stuff in the middle of your problem. 
supernatural power, yes, sometimes a supernatural deliverance, but also supernatural joy. Because how many of us can say sometimes God doesn't take the problem away? Come on, somebody. You ever had to walk through a problem? Even though you prayed, God take this problem away and it didn't go away, did it? You just had to walk through it. And so sometimes, yes, He delivers us from our problem. Sometimes He steps in and solves the problem. Sometimes we make the problem and He steps in and solves the problem. But sometimes He just gives us the joy, the supernatural peace, the supernatural wisdom to walk through a problem. So sometimes what we get is supernatural perspective about our problem. And that's part of what the series is about. It's the presence of an answer. It doesn't make the problem go away but it equips us to better answer the problem, to better deal with the problem. The same problems that our friends, our, our family members, our neighbors, our contemporaries, uh, people on the job may have, but it's, it's different because we have supernatural help and supernatural perspective about our problem. We're going through the same stuff they are. They've got financial woes. We've got financial woes. They've got issues in their family. We've got issues. They have health issues. We've got health issues. But it's different for the follower of Christ because you have a supernatural perspective and supernatural help with your problems. So in dealing with problems, it's easy to just see it on the surface. Uh, and and, and this, is, this is our box today. It's easy to see it on the surface and miss what's really causing it, what's really on the inside of it, miss what's really going on behind it. What we need is perspective. And so as a way of getting into this topic today, I want to share this story with you. On February 22, 1911, Gaston Herview climbed the Eiffel Tower to test a new parachute for pilots. He checked the wind, took a nervous breath, and began his test. His silk parachute filled with air and then sailed safely to the ground. Herview did not make the jump himself. He used a 160-pound test dummy. To one man, this was an outrage. Franz Reichelt was an Austrian tailor who was developing a parachute of his own. He denounced Herview's use of a dummy as a sham. One year later, on the morning of Sunday, February 4, 1912, Hans Reichelt arrived at the Eiffel Tower to conduct his own parachute experiment. As Reichelt posed for pictures, he announced, I am so convinced my device will work properly that I will not use a test dummy. I will jump myself. You can kind of see where this is going, right? Gaston Herview pulled Reichelt aside and tried his best to stop him. Herview claimed that there were technical reasons why Reichelt's parachute would not work. The two men had a heated discussion until finally Reichelt walked away. Now, modern parachutes use 700 square feet of fabric and should be deployed only above 250 feet. Reichelt's parachute used less than 350 square feet of fabric and he deployed it at 187 feet. He had neither the surface area nor the altitude needed to make a successful jump, or rather, to make a successful landing. Herview was not the only one who told Reichelt that his parachute would not work. It had also been rejected by a team of experts who told him, the surface of your device is too small, you will break your neck. 
He not only ignored the experts, he also ignored his own data. He tested his parachute using dummies, and they crashed. He tested his parachute by jumping 30 feet into a haystack, and he crashed. He tested his parachute by jumping 20 feet without a haystack, and he crashed and broke his leg. Instead of changing his invention, he clung to his bad idea in the face of all evidence and advice. Reichelt fell for four seconds, accelerating constantly until he hit the ground at 60 miles an hour, making a cloud of frost and dust and a dent approximately six inches deep in the ground. He was killed on impact. This is the danger of a box. The box that Reichelt was in would not allow any new information. I'll say that again because it's really good and I don't know that some of you caught it. Reichelt's box would not allow any new information to get in. The box that Reichelt was in was about needing to be right. And all of us battle this same plaguing compulsion about needing to be right. Now we're going to get into this idea and pick it apart later on. Today is really an introduction and I don't think I'm going to finish. So we'll be introducing again tomorrow or next Sunday. But today I want to share a story with Scripture with you where boxes abound. There's, there's plenty of boxes. It's a warehouse of boxes. How many of you, in listening to that story about uh, Reichelt, how many of you would agree that Reichelt was not only stubborn to a fault, but that his point of view, his perspective, killed him? You would agree with that? Our point of view, our perspective on things, or sometimes our lack of perspective on things, guys, it's, it's killing us. It, it will destroy us. It destroys our marriages. It wrecks our relationships. It derails our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions. It's at the root of every conflict. It's the inability to see the problem that's beneath the problem. Perspective matters. Y'all remember whenever we were going through the four G's, I said it almost every day. A.W. Tozer said what? The first thing that comes into your mind whenever you think about God it's the most important thing about you. It's a perspective issue. Perspective matters. Our perspective matters. So as a way of getting into this, I want to share with, the, uh, share with you this very familiar story from Scripture. It comes from John chapter 8. Uh, we usually call it the woman caught in adultery. Don't everybody? We've, we've heard the story. We've seen it acted out in Easter dramas. We've played a part in it being acted out in Easter dramas, right? The context matters, so let's, let's set this up. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem and He's at the temple. And uh, the crowd, they, they, by now, Jesus was starting to get a little bit of notoriety and fame and they knew that Jesus, this miracle worker and this teacher, was at the temple. So this crowd gathers around Him and so Jesus begins to teach them while He's at the temple. And while He's teaching, something very strange happens. It starts in verse 3. And this is probably the only scripture that we'll actually get through today. 
But in verse 3 of John 8, it says, As he, as Jesus, was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Now, we're already, we're already there. We're already exposing some boxes. We haven't opened them up yet, but there's already some boxes here. Anybody see what's strange or unusual about this story already? Anything stand out to you? Yeah, where's the man? Where is the dude? And we're not in biology class this morning, and we'll at least try to keep this PG rated, but the last time I checked, it takes two to tango. Right? So what are some of the boxes right away? There's a, there's a gender box here. That the woman is somehow disposable. That she is somehow of less value. I mean, the man doesn't get public shaming. The man doesn't get called out and brought in front of everybody. So there's this cultural box already at work before we even get to the deeper problems at work in this story. That they could drag her and embarrass her and, and the man, he gets off scot-free. It's, it's boxes, it's perspectives, it's cultural assumptions. Now, they bring her before Jesus. Now, ask yourself, at this point in the story, do the religious leaders who are dragging this woman up before Jesus, do did they, did they really care about her at all at this point? No. What are they hoping to accomplish? Is this about her? I mean, really, this story, and, and most of you guys are familiar with the story, is this really about her and what she did? No, what are they doing? Why did they bring her before Jesus? Yeah. They were attempting to test Jesus. We'll get into this a little bit more, but there's a conflict there between certain interpretations of Mosaic law and Roman law. Because certain interpretations of Mosaic law said that she should be stoned, but yet Roman law said that, there's, that she could not be executed for adultery. So... Oh, we're going to catch Jesus in a trap. What's he going to do? Is he going to go with Roman law? Is he going to go with the strict interpretation of Mosaic law? So let's keep going deeper. They're trying to test him, but why are the religious leaders wanting to test Jesus in front of everybody? What do you think? They want to prove him wrong. They want to catch him in an error. They want to discredit him. See, this is, this is all about being right. In a certain, just, just about every box that we live in and that we operate from is about being right. Fundamentally, deep down, boxes are about being right. Boxes that hide the real problem beneath the problem. And what we do is we deal with surface problems instead of the real issue because what we're really struggling with is our innate worship of being right. We need so desperately to be right, to be proven right. 
And it's one of the greatest proofs for the existence of God. I'm going to take a little diversion here. I, I got plugged into this book a couple of weeks ago called God's Crime Scene. Um, it's, uh, oh, what's the rest of the title? God's Crime Scene, uh, an investigative... <coughs> How's he say it? Oh, God's Crime Scene, a forensic detective's look at evidence for a divinely inspired universe. So this guy, uh, his last name is Warren. He, uh, he, was a, he was an atheist and a, a forensic investigator. He was a cop and detective in uh, L.A. during the 80s, the whole drug scene there. Uh, and as he got older, he moved into forensics. This guy developed a reputation as being like the evidence whisperer. Now he has clout with the people that do that Dateline show. I don't know if any of you ever watched that or heard about it. It's investigative reporting. Um, and he, through an examination of evidence... Not necessarily scriptural evidence, but just an examination of biological evidence, philosophical evidence, and universal astro astronomical evidence converted to Christianity. It's a pretty fascinating book. Anyway, that ties in with this other guy. His name is Blaise Pascal, and that's where I'm really going. Blaise Pascal, he's a French mathematician, writer, and, and Christian philosopher. He lived in the 1600s. He was originally an atheist. He didn't believe in the existence of God, but he had this profound conversion. And he summarized it in a work called Mind on Fire, is how it's translated. Um, it's the testimony, essentially, of his conversion. And in the book, he makes a, and I'm about to use a really big word here, I'll probably choke on it or knock out some of my teeth, but it's, it's an ontological argument. Ontological. Ontology uses the nature of being to argue for the existence of God. And so Pascal makes this argument for God that stems from just the nature of being and living. And in it, he asks, why do we need to be right? Why do we need to be right? Why is it so compelling for us, the need to be right? He said, I see no evolutionary benefit for it. I'm sure you can make a few survival points from it, but the need or the drive to be right about things that don't even matter in the larger scheme of things, it makes no sense to the survival of the species and it's literally killing us. Because everyone striving to be right is at the root of every conflict, it's at the root of every war. So don't get me wrong this morning as, as I'm taking off down this, down this track. Truth matters. And a love for truth matters. We can't be saved without truth. Of course it matters. But the need to be right on a human level causes more evil than a love for truth ever did. They're not the same thing. Loving truth and needing to be right, they're not even on the same spectrum. But they often get blended together or mistaken for being the same thing. A love for truth is about seeking something that's transcendent, that's bigger than yourself. It's not a selfish gesture. But it's loving something and seeking something that's larger than me, that's larger than mine, and it's larger than what I want. That's loving truth. So if you want to get yourself in a selfless, sacrificial bind real quick, try loving somebody the way that Jesus did instead of trying to prove who's right and wrong in Scripture. Instead of arguing truth, love in truth. And when you do that, being right is no longer your primary drive and motivation. 
But the need to be right, that human need, that drive to be right at a self-preservation survival level of if I'm not right, then I'm invalidated. If I'm not right, I have no value. If I'm not right, I lose. And I have to win. I've got to conquer you so that I can be validated, so I can prove whatever, how much I know, how great I am, what a great Christian I am. So in his work, Mind on Fire, Blaise Pascal brings up this really powerful point about why we have to be right. He said, do we strive to be right because something fundamentally is wrong? This is, this is pretty cool. Is it because, he said, something is missing? Is it because we are not in right relationship with how we originally were designed and intended to exist? If so, that would explain, here's that big word, ontologically, why there's this gnawing sense inside of us that something is off. Something's just not right. And what happens then is that humans feel the need to self-correct. And we attach ourselves to political ideas and factual pursuit and religious institutions. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that. But we attach ourselves to them and we pursue them at a survival, I'm going to make up a word, salvational level. How many of you have ever seen somebody so wrapped up in a political cause, it's like that's the only thing they can live for? Yeah. How many of you have seen somebody so wrapped up in the institution of religion? Not relationship, religion. Okay. So we look to those ideas and, and causes with a desperation so that they can save us and make us right. Jesus came... To what? To justify us. What does justify mean? What does justify mean? Make you right. We have been made right because we weren't right. So the fundamental position of a Jesus follower is, you're not right. You had to arrive there in your mind and in your spirit before you ever did anything else, something's not right. And I, I got to take steps. And, and folks, you're awesome. But you ain't right. But because of Jesus, there's hope for you and there's hope for me. Because He did for us what we could not do, He made us right. He justified us. So let go of being right, because you can't do it on your own. And when you let go of trying to make yourself right and embrace the, uh, the redemptive work of Jesus, you get what you've been after all along. You get made right. Finish up with Blaise Pascal and how this ties in with the existence of God. He asks a question. Watch this. I know of no man who has wept over not having a third arm. Anybody? You know of anybody that's really upset that they don't have... I mean, with the possible exception of a mother with a two-year-old, 
I can't think of anybody that's weeping over the fact that they don't have eight arms growing out of their trunk. So who weeps over what's not there and what was never supposed to be there? Who weeps over it? Nobody does. The point of Pascal's argument is that the misery of humanity is one of the greatest evidences for God. Why are we so miserable? Why are we so upset? Why are we so out of sort? Why are we constantly searching? Why are we constantly striving? Could it be that we are miserable over something that used to be there? What is it that we want so bad? There's no precedent for this anywhere in our existence. We don't weep over not having four arms, Steve. But if you lost one of your two arms, we don't weep over not having a third eye. Man, my life would be so much better if I just had a third eye right here in the middle of my forehead. We don't weep over not having a third eye, but if you lose one of your two eyes, Pascal says that we are miserable and weeping and grieving over something that was once truly ours. And I want to connect that, that the need to be right is, is the grieving human self-preservation response to once having been right and in perfect harmony with God. And it shows up throughout all of human experience. It plays out in religion. It plays out in politics. It plays out in science. God's bias is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in the church. It's in the laboratory. And now I love church and I love science. But let's call it like it is. There are people with twisted perspectives desiring to be right more than they are desiring to find truth in both settings. I don't care if it's up there on the platform or if it's in the laboratory. It's in the halls of government. It's in the universities. It's in the schools. And it's in us. It's a box called needing to be right. Wanting so desperately to be right. So why are we miserable? Is it over something we never had? No. We're miserable over what we lost in the garden. We were in rightness with God. And we lost it. And it is hardwired into us. It is part of our DNA. And we want so desperately to be right again. That we will try to make self right. We will try to self correct. The only thing that is so, and this is the end of Pascal's argument, the only thing that is so transcendent, so glorious, so absolute, that it would make all of mankind miserable to not have it, you have to postulate the existence of a God. So let me make this connection. The very existence of our boxes, in this case the drive to be right, proves to us that there is a God and that we need His justification. <laughs> Wow. Let's get back to John chapter 8. We're still in verse 3. Haven't even got through the rest of the story. It's okay. So right away we see that there are these religious, political, cultural boxes that people are operating from. Who's the instant victim in this story? 
It's pretty obvious. Who's who's the instant victim here? It's the woman. And watch this. It, it, it's not that adultery is okay. This this is not some kind of commentary to excuse sin and wrongdoing. Okay, that's not what this is about. We're going to call it what it is. Adultery is sin. It's wrong. It wrecks lives. It wrecks families. It messes up people's minds, their hearts. It destroys relationships. But what this story shows us is that Jesus does not allow a person who is in the wrong, but is broken, to be used as a pawn for someone else's sense of justification. I mean, look, I thought about this this morning. Go ahead and say it. We, followers of Jesus in here today, we got to be really careful with what's going on in our country right now. We can't politicize everything and sign up for this religious culture war. We can't forsake the justification, the being made right that comes from God, and enter into this uh, political arena where we've got our Jesus name battle gear on and our biblical battle axes at the ready and we're ready to cave in the head of any infidel that doesn't believe like we, we can't. Because when we take people who are caught in the act of adultery and vilify them and make them the enemy, we are taking broken people and making them the object of our desire to be right. We're taking broken people and making them the object of our desire to be right. And whenever we do that, we are not in line with Jesus. We've got, to, we've got to proceed with caution. Let me go ahead and I'll just put it out there and be real plain. This, our country was recently just caught up in the, in the fervor of homosexual marriage. And the Bible speaks pretty plainly. Right? So the fact that something is sinful and wrong is established biblically but yet it gets politicized and made, to, made into this religious culture war. And there are broken people at stake in the middle of all this. We've got to proceed with caution and, and really be really careful about what we say, Jason. What we write, what we post on Facebook, what we repost on Facebook. And how we think about these issues, we've got to be careful because we can't endorse adultery. We can't endorse sin. That's not what Jesus did. But at the same time, we can't afford to move into a box where people become objects. She's not a person right now. Where we are in this story, she's not a person. She is an object. She is a means to an end. For the religious people. Who are the religious people in the room today? Everybody raise your hand. Because whenever Jesus starts talking about Pharisees and Sadducees 
and all those law people, he's talking about the established religion. That stuff's got to be reflective for us. So they come in, they bring her in, and they throw her down like she is nothing. And here's what we have to be careful of. When people fall, when people make mistakes, whenever they slip up, if you're living out of self-justification, if you're living from a position of self-righteousness, you will instantly get this little rush of superiority whenever someone's fault is exposed in front of you. I'm not going to ask for anybody to raise their hand right now. But you will suddenly go, aha, aha. One less competitor on my way to world domination in Jesus' name. Come on. Keyshawn Johnson said it best. Come on, man. God did not call us to world domination at the expense of someone else's shame. He called us to love the world and watch Him convert the world through us manifesting, demonstrating, acting out, and sharing the love of God with everybody. Caught in adultery or not. Publicly shamed or not. So what we see here is this woman thrown in front of Jesus and she is an object when we get that rush of superiority over someone, we've taken away their humanity. We've taken away their divine image because we are created in the image of God. So you need to think about, and Jason needs to think about, every people group that you don't agree with. The Aryans, the Crips, the Bloods. The KKK, the homosexual left-wing tree-hugger Democrat, every people group that you don't agree with, every social group that you don't like their position or where are they taking this country right now, can I get an amen? And I'm, I'm mocking that just a little. Because what that is, is that's code word for objectifying people. That's code word for taking away someone's humanity so that we can prove ourselves right in the world. And this is not the model of Jesus. This is not the demonstration of Christ. Whenever we do that. Mm, feel a little something. Trying to be a good boy here and... Sunday school. We desperately need to look at the problem and hold to their humanity at the same time. We can't ever let people become things. Jesus never let a broken person become a thing. He didn't let you. Whenever you came to Him in your brokenness with all the mess going on in your life and all of your hang-ups and problems since the first time you got the Holy Ghost, He's never made an object out of you. He's never made you a pawn or a means to an end. 
boxes. Boxes. We're not, we're not finished with John chapter 8. We'll finish this story next Sunday. And, and we'll, we're just going to kind of float through this. It might take us four, six, eight weeks to, to get through this little study on boxes. But um, God's going to talk to us. He's going to talk to us about the problem beneath the problem. He's going to talk to us about our need to be right and what He's already done. Brian, through grace and justified us for Himself. He's going to talk to us about these things. So let's pray. We gotta, we gotta, I got more, but we've got we to gotta wrap it up. And if I start this next bit, we'll be late. So let's, uh, let's pray and um, we'll go to big church. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for, your, for what Your Word presents to us. God, open our perspective. This is all about perspective, Lord. It's all about seeing the root of the problem. What's, what's really inside. And in some days, Lord, I feel like it's almost like one of those Russian doll things that you open up one and there's something else inside it and you open up something else and there's another one. And God, get down to the core of the problems that we struggle with, Lord. Reinforce to us, God, in our daily lives over these next few weeks about, God, they're people. Yes, they've done wrong. Yes, they've broken the commandments of your word. Yes, they need to be put back into right standing with you, but they are people. And they should never be an object, Lord, for us to validate ourselves.